Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the first delivery of Terrograms. Today I'm joined by Julie Bargman of Dirt Studio in her Charlottesville, Virginia office. Julie is the principal of Dirt Studio and has developed and built her practice around ideas embedded in the remediation and reclamation of polluted sites. She's an associate professor at the University of Virginia and the former director of the Landscape Architecture Program. She's taught at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and at the University of Minnesota. She has presented her research and work all over the country. She's a winner of the American Academy Rome Prize in Landscape Architecture, of the National Design Award from the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. She's a recipient of a Graham Foundation grant, and she has been published in Architecture, Garden Design, ID, Landscape Journal, Architectural Record, and the Public Art Review. And she's been featured in the popular media outlets of Newsweek, Time Magazine, CNN, NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, the PRI, Studio 360, and the New York Times. We are truly honored to be here with you. Thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Terrograms, Julia. Thank you. Why don't we start right in the DIRT. DIRT is an acronym, D-I-R-T. Can you tell us what it stands for? Its initial uh, uh, definition, or um, what it stands for, is Design Investigations Reclaiming Terrain. And that's its academic origin. Academic origin, do you, are you inferring that the studio's name was founded in, at a university? Well, it started with research, which, of course, when I was at the University of Minnesota and received a rather sizable uh, grant upon coming, becoming an assistant professor there, I actually didn't know what research was. <laughs> so I basically turned it into a road trip. And... At that time, I just was like, well, I'm in Minnesota, I'm, I'm in, you know, Iron Range mining territory, I've been interested in mined landscapes uh, ever since Robert Smithson sort of mm -hmm. left this world, mm -hmm. starting to investigate them. So that's when dirt happened. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So the connection to your background as a sculptor into your work in reclaimed sites was perhaps through Robert Smith? Yeah, I would, I would say so. I think that um, that was the kind of first inkling of, you know, wow, that's pretty interesting mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, also, there's a bit of background in having worked with Michael Van Volkenberg, and increasingly when he got public commissions, um, he was starting to work on some sites that had post-industrial histories, and I found myself gravitating towards those. Towards the sites or to the history in, in contemporary art? Um, well, maybe both. Um, I think just the sites themselves. I just was very interested in those layers. Do you think that there was that uh, interest in the layers was able to appear in the final product project? Were you able to un unearth them and re-reveal them? I think that in the earlier projects, when it was just kind of an undercurrent of an interest, um, an effort to reveal those or make them part of really the design you know, mm -hmm. the, the built form of a place wasn't quite gelling quite mm -hmm. yet. Um, that that took some time. 
did you find a, that there was a rift between your work as a sculptor and your work in these um, these damaged sites? That was a, a rift that was hard to reconnect. Hmm. I don't know what you mean by rift. Um, well, do you do you still did you in your early work in landscape architecture? Did you still think of yourself as a sculptor? I think I did in that I I thought I'm remembering actually quite vividly my first year at design school and definitely a rift there between my art education and design education mm -hmm. in that my uh, approach um, may not have been kind of this problem solving mm -hmm. kind of way that you know I thought design operated mm -hmm. you know and in fact I had some trouble. Uh, in that I think I was trying too hard to be a designer and mm -hmm. I had a great teacher Sherry Klusing who just said stop that you know don't do that you know be who you are be mm -hmm. the artist that you are and um, so my approach might be that I have to say in, in in kind of thinking about that is I I think that it's more the approach to projects that is something that I've learned and tried to emulate in terms of in artists and being mm -hmm. an artist, you know, not kind of a formal thing like, oh, are you, is your work still sculptural? Right. You know, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But more, for me, more importantly, it was this idea of a, attacking or addressing issues proactively mm -hmm. in that that's what the, the artist work was about. Right. That they they identified an issue, the good good artists, mm -hmm. <laughs> they identified an issue and really went after it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking of artists like Mel Chin, Meryl Lugliz, Robert Smithson, of course, um, and a lot of the kind of environmental artists whose work I um, really respect and it, their their process that I really right. respect. Um, and you know, to me, that's that's part of this kind of you know what designers would call a critical practice and so you would still consider yourself a sculptor <laughs> <laughs> in process yes in process. Um, about 15 or 16 years ago you were in rome mm. um, comparing environmental art and ancient landscapes um, back then would you have expected to be where you are today mm. Mm. no in that i was although I, I think I was wondering what form my work was going to take um, because it really was at a critical point, which is what's great about the Rome Prize, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, where I had learned the craft. I was learning the craft with Michael Van Volkenberg. Uh, took uh, you know a break from there to go to Rome and felt like something was gurgling mm -hmm. up wasn't quite sure what it was and that's why I actually wanted to look at the ancient sites and the earthworks just to kind of satisfy a curiosity there and I think it was um, what I think they shared was kind of a willfulness um, with the landscape um, that somehow I just was like you know I love that and that's what I mm -hmm. want to do I want this kind of you know, more willful, sensitive, but not apologetic mm -hmm. approach. 
And were there specific sites that you that you studied in Rome? Yeah, I, the Etruscan landscapes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, you know, you just always want to find out why the Etruscans have a smile on their face all the time. <laughs> so there's got to be a reason. Um, and I think that there was, I think what I found in them, um, as interpreted actually by this great book by uh, D.H. Lawrence, the Etruscans, mm-hmm. which is kind of part fiction, part fact, mm-hmm. is, and his kind of projection of what the Etruscans were, were about is um, kind of a free spirit, free spirited, kind of instinctual, uh, soul felt way of occupying a site, you know, and marking, you know, a site um, in a very, you know, human, mm-hmm. you know, just soulful way. Mm-hmm. When you return back to Cambridge after being a fellow in Rome, was it? easy to get back into the rhythm? Yeah, you know, because I, I returned to Ben Volkenberg's office, mm-hmm. and uh, I've always been, you know, very simpatico uh, with um, Michael and his and his work. Um, so that wasn't very hard at all, except that you could kind of get used to the Italian <laughs> <laughs> day and, and calendar. Uh, and going back into you know sixty and eighty hour weeks <laughs> was a little intense, a little but I was anxious to get back to practice. Mm-hmm. Very anxious. Mm-hmm. And so you spent two years um, with Michael Van mm-hmm. Bakenberg, and then what drove you out to Minnesota? Oh, who knows? But uh, well, actually, it was always um, an interest in teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was at you know the graduate school of design, I was a teaching assistant. Uh, kind of worked my way through graduate school. Um, and always enjoyed um, the aspect of teaching. I felt it made me a better designer, a better critic mm-hmm. of my own work uh, and of others. And um, the call came out of the blue, and it also coincided with the time to kind of strike out on my own. Mm-hmm. Michael must have been sad to. Well, it was pretty mutual, actually. I think Michael felt it was time to nudge me out of the nest. Mm-hmm. Back to Dirt. How does the Dirt Studio function currently? And can you tell me a little mm. bit about your team composition? Mm. Well, um, Dirt now actually is, I, I like to think, entering its new a new chapter. Uh, I don't know what that is yet. <laughs> but... Uh, um, clearly, it was a, a, a bit of a leap for me uh, to um, uh, team up with a uh, managing partner, uh, Chris Fannin, um, uh, basically to actually embark on a new chapter mm-hmm. for Dirt Studio, uh, um, partly out of practicality because I was exhausting myself mm-hmm. uh, running Dirt Studio by myself. Um, for however many years, over a decade. Um, and But I still... 13. 13 years, thank you. Uh, making me feel ancient. <laughs> uh, but um, And I've always operated, and we continue to operate with uh, very few other um, employees. Usually it's just one right now, an associate David Hill. And in the past, I've did kind of a classic thing where I uh, asked people to work with me um, when the projects demanded right. um, uh, 
important associate in the past with Joe Ragsdale. A lot they've been, a lot of times, of course, they've been former students because mm-hmm. uh, we just have a great, uh, great pickings mm-hmm. here. Um, but the 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 intent has always been to be very small and agile mm-hmm. to become parts of teams. Um, never been interested in developing a large practice that would be quite complicated managerially, you know, and um, so I liked it very much when uh, a person uh, that I was collaborating with was asking me about the practice and she likened, we were working with KPF at the time, Mm -hmm. and she likened dirt to a little speedboat that pulls up next to ocean liners, Mm -hmm. like KPF, yeah, big tankers. Who were slow to slow right. to turn? What happens when that big that big tanker comes into your port and you need to get up, climb up in and pilot <laughs> into it? there? <laughs> oh boy! Um, you know it. Uh, it varies with how that goes, um, but I've I pretty consistently found that um, dirt is called in for pretty particular reasons. Um, and there's an element of receptiveness, unless I, it's a been a uh, unless it's been a forced marriage, mm-hmm. uh, which I I I've stay I stay I have had a few of and I stay away from now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's uh, so them calling dirt is you know a very particular request, mm-hmm. and and still from there it's it's a question whether or not they're receptive to the ideas that we bring to the table. Do you think this, uh, your particularity, uh, is it founded in, in reclaiming terrain? And would you say this is your specialty? I, I, I think it's a specialty and a focus. I mean, we've actually, I had a, another colleague uh, come up with a great term of calling us industrial site architects. Mm-hmm. Actually, to for some clarity of what the focus of the work is and also to um, actually help out on some design teams where there's been a, another landscape architect on the team. So they're like, why are there two landscape architects? Like I've noticed that in your team compositions, often you're uh, in parallel with, with other professionals who Correct. are perhaps sharing the same responsibilities or could be. Could be well. We well. Th- that's been a again a a, a varied. Uh, there's varied amount of success in terms of those um, uh, those collaborations or those uh, some people would call joint ventures mm-hmm. with other landscape architects. I think again, it takes um, uh, some alliances that mm-hmm. are um, receptive um, to that kind of alliance. Um, uh, but. Uh, there's been some very successful ones, and I'm, I like mm-hmm. to think that we're building these mm-hmm. kind of alliances with all sorts of people, you know, other landscape architects, engineers, scientists, architects. Are you interested in widening the scope, the scope of work? Well, you know, I there's been times where I felt like it would be a problem being pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, actually, I try to expand the definition uh, I've actually started to wor- use the word regenerative technologies mm-hmm. versus remediation or reclamation because there's a, for me, in the word gen- regeneration, there's 
a, the suggestion, maybe just by virtue of its definition of creating a new, that those kind of ideas can be um, applied to not just past, which remediation re reclamation right. apply to a lot, but to kind of future mm -hmm. um, landscapes or even, uh, um, you know, quote unquote sustainable. <laughs> I don't, you, you know, I avoid that word. Don't and that word I don't try not to use that word um, and use regenerative instead. What are you working on now? Um, right now, the uh, primary project is um, Urban Outfitters. Mm. Um, they're moving their whole uh, production, their works of over uh, 400 people and growing uh, to the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And could you describe a bit your mm -hmm. intervention? Well, we um, they're occupying um, four buildings, very large buildings, uh, at the historic core of that Navy Yard, which is fantastically situated at the um, axis of Broad Street, um, uh, right in line with City Hall uh, mm -hmm. on the Delaware River. Um, and... Uh, Basically, um, we're working on a very uh, in a very multidisciplinary team um, of architects and other landscape architects slash civil engineer, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, in basically doing what we hope we always say we do, and that is um, uh, reading the traces of that site, respecting them and overlaying or building within those traces this new inhabitation. And how responsive has Urban Outfitters been to your approach? Well, it's pretty interesting in that, um, actually, when we started the project, Urban Outfitters um, uh, revealed to us <laughs> a lot of their uh, merchandising um, uh, secrets, but more importantly than that, um, their philosophies. Um, behind all their brands mm -hmm. and it was very interesting how in line it was mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their um, their interest in the reuse of places the patina mm -hmm. you know of places again their approach being I think a bit more stylistic mm -hmm. than not um, but We'll take that alignment. Has this, has this, has their branding facilitated some of the ideas that you've had? Facilitated approval of some of the ideas you've had on the, on the project? I think so. Um, I think so. It's also interfered. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I had a knockout drag out that was extremely revealing, where I tried to make, um, or I tried, I presented the argument. For a certain aspect, um, this certain uh, particularly scary contaminated place, part of the site, mm -hmm. the acid room. And I argued for retaining more of the industrial traces of the production. Mm -hmm. And he, I'll never forget it, he turned to me and said, why should I care about this? And I said, because these represent... 150 years of labor on this site before you got here. So the branding had its limits. Yeah. What are some of the other components to your project? Um, the In one, addition to the acid room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other is a is a, 
uh, one that I'm pretty excited about that, you know, I, I think that other people are getting at with this kind of obsession with recycled mm-hmm. things. And um, I'm, uh, and it has to do with really some things that are uh, dumb as dirt. <laughs> and that is um, a very practical thing of asking the question of where does all the material that gets demolished at a site go? Mm-hmm. And, and wondering about that going, well, wait a second, you know, can't a good amount of that be reused on the site so we can really reduce the amount of right. material going off site into, you know, a landfill in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we came up with this thing I called Barney Rubble. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a paving um, system that basically reuses giant chunks of concrete that get broken up on the site and they get reset uh, mm-hmm. in place. So, do you think that'll be able to go through? Uh, he, the owner, absolutely loved it. How absolutely big? How big will it. your pieces be? Oh, you know, it kind of whatever the jackhammer does, mm-hmm. you know, and depends if the, you know, how reinforced mm-hmm. the concrete is mm-hmm. and, you know, but they range from, you know, four foot square, you know, maybe down to, you know, a foot and a half, two foot. And will these big pieces be dry laid or will you uh, pour them in? No, put them in place? Uh, uh, to date, the two ways we've done them is just dry laid. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, so you've already done part. Already... Yeah, I, I. This is the second project we've mm-hmm. worked. I. Um, this is this also the beauty of of getting back to smaller scale projects. The time I, uh, we first used Barney Rubble was on a um, a private um, project, um, mm-hmm. a former pump station mm-hmm. in Dallas, Texas, um, and um, so uh, that was kind of curious. You think in the context of one of the most affluent neighborhoods in Dallas, uh, something like broken concrete mm-hmm. wouldn't cut the mustard. And, uh, you know, it did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so. Is there a, will the, at Urban Outfitters, will be, there be a period of uh, teaching the workers how to do this? Because mm, they're not yes. sort of accustomed to taking demolition oh, and they, keep, they, uh, storing it in a They thought we were absolutely crazy. insane. Mm-hmm. Absolutely insane, and actually, nicely enough, that's what led to the full-scale mock-up. Mm-hmm. Was they just said we have really, or we kind of know what you're talking about, but we don't know what you're talking right. about. We also were like, we don't know what's underground. And maybe they wanted to be sure they knew, they knew right. what you were right. They right, which about. I have to say, the other thing that you know, I have to say, it is gone by the wayside. Um, unfortunately, with the Philadelphia Navy Yard is this issue of, of contamination on the site. Um, uh, um, as much as I tried to probe about that, mm-hmm. uh, the more and more it was, you know, kind of taken off the table. I don't think the contamination issues on the part of the site that we were working were 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 great, you know, just by knowing what processes took place there. Mm-hmm. But um, oftentimes, the problem over and over again is that we come in too late. Mm-hmm. Given that healing a landscape is such a long process, how do you know when to finally reclaim? Mm. Mm. Oh boy. Well, um, 
I think it has to do, well, actually, you bring up a great point because one of the main things that is difficult, well, has to do with kind of my the philosophy we're trying to bring to these projects, and that is conventional remediation um, basically is about erasing the contamination. Mm-hmm. It's hog and haul, mm-hmm. which the boys call it in the industry of ex- hog, and haul. hog and haul, excavation and disposal. Mm-hmm. Or cap and cover, mm-hmm. okay, which is, you know, as it sounds, they 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 cap, you know, with supposedly impervious or to avoid contact, you know, and quick kind of put on a green veneer, so nobody knows you know, what's really happened here. So, what what remediation technologies and process that we've been advocating is a much, usually, a much slower process mm-hmm. of actually degrading the you know the contaminants degrading you know basically truly dealing with the the, the problem on site preferably in situ mm-hmm. and so that necessitates actually then this the whole system of system of monitoring mm-hmm. which they actually do anyway but we've been trying to kind of advocate that this monitoring um, and the, tra- the the process of remediation become more legible and more accessible. Mm-hmm. That actually the public is invited into these sites more immediately and incrementally. Does it mean that you need to hog and haul or cap and cover part of the site so that the other part of the site can be accessible for viewing? I mean, often it does, but I mean, in an ideal world, hog and haul and cap and cover isn't used at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in some projects, um, we've uh, proposed that, like you're you're suggesting, that the remediation um, take place um, over time, but preferably like on on site. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's this this cycle of like, okay, the you know toxic contaminated soil would be lugged to another part of the site, but remediated there and then brought back mm-hmm. back on. So that's like you're practicing in the field of reclaiming polluted wasteland. You are a healer. Does this profound role alleviate you from the aesthetic or cultural dimension of design? (laughs) Ouch. Um, I must say that it's even become a pet peeve of mine or I, I really, as you can hear, I cringe when the word healer is being used or healing. Um, I don't think of it that way. Um, Maybe I should, and there is an aspect of that, but that's something that I allow other people to assign, and if they Mm -hmm. want to call it that or call me that, that's fine. I see it as extremely practical and very common sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, the frontier is closed. Um, you know, we've got to, you know, do something about these sites, you know, and they're, you know, the next place we're we're moving. So to me it's it really is is common sense. And in fact, I would argue that what I'm trying to bring to these sites is the aesthetic and the cultural mm-hmm. value in actually 
just even the significance of the act of reclaiming, mm-hmm. okay, as, as a part of our culture, um, and also the act of making these transformations visible and legible as the primary part. Do you have to grapple with the term or the idea of naturalism or the natural paradigm mm-hmm. um, relative to aesthetics? Because mm-hmm. many people think that remediation or reclamation means or restoration nature back in, and so Absolutely. there should be no aesthetic or cultural dimension to it. So how does this play in oh, your work? Oh, big time. Big time because because of our you know kind of pastoral ideal right of mm-hmm. of nature you know capital N you know that gets imposed upon us building landscapes um, I'm completely there's a battle there because especially with all of the anxiety around degraded landscapes it's sort of like quick you know make this look pastoral. An ideal to make to make me comfortable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Is there a funny uh, segue between artificial industrial landscapes, polluted landscapes, artificial natural landscapes? That people need that natural landscape in order to erase the two phases of artificiality that 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 goes on the site. Yeah. Again, I I think that it's it's a um, it's a uh, um, a level of expectation that they have. Um, and I was I was just going to say too, what struck me, you know, in, in talking about this, is how much I have been struck when working with communities that when you present, you know, or um, represent to them these landscapes, these industrial landscapes, and put them, you know, into the question of, of beauty, you know, of a part of their landscape, a part of their landscape, their heritage. It's so striking how many people come around and say, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. They don't have, they don't really have the words for it. You know, and I think that is what I have found is the biggest thing that DIRT has endeavored, you know, to accomplish, and that is try to develop a new landscape vocabulary. And so you found that people have been very open to A lot of times, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, it, it, it you know, um, certainly lets, you know, things get sorted quickly, mm-hmm. you know, um, in, in terms of that kind of receptiveness. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your Superfund Redevelopment Initiative. Mm. It was on the top of your list project. Oh, well, that must have been when I was feeling really good about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not on the top of my list now. I, I Well, depending on who I'm pitching, you know, I, I, you put different... Uh, Sounds ambitious. It's ambitious. Um, it was... Um, this is where, uh, you know, my research you know, in my academic world kind of met, meets my uh, practice, and that is that I got involved with a multi-school uh, research initiative for the, what's called the Superfund Redevelopment Initiative. Basically, uh, an initiative that was really trying to um, evaluate the Superfund program 
and basically evaluate the problem that is it, it has had in implementing a lot of its uh, program. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, I mean, it was incredibly revealing um, to just kind of get in the thick of it with the EPA. And who was the initiative of, the, of this initiative? Oh, um, actually, uh, colleagues here in Charlottesville who um, have a lot of experience with Superfund sites and just really felt like it was a fantastic idea to get an academic um, group together uh, to study it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was fantastic. I, I got to, it took, for this, it took the form of um, uh, some funded design studios mm -hmm. to work with the students to um, look at alternatives uh, of kind of what was, you know, what was, what was holding up, where, what were the obstacles uh, in um, facing super, the Superfund program, but most, most importantly, communities that had Superfund sites mm -hmm. in their midst. So uh, it was great, but incredibly frustrating. Does it have a future? It's the our our funded research is is done, finished, finished. Um, you know, and I um, I think you know there was a good effort on our part to figure out how to perpetuate it, and I think that you know we have a group of folks that are are very simpatico and with their antenna up look for other projects um, uh, along these lines. Um, but we'll see. I mean, you know how much the funding has been cutted, mm -hmm. cut with, <laughs> for the, you know, the EPA. So sometimes research initiatives like this are, are, are um, the first things to get cut. Maybe it's a springboard to something else. Well, for me, you know, for me, it absolutely changed my attitude towards the EPA. I used to just slam them all over the and I became very simpatico mm -hmm. uh, in that I thought I think I saw much more clearly what they're up against. You think they have difficult challenges? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, they may have tied their own hands, but their mm -hmm. hands are tied. Mm -hmm. And um, whew. <laughs> I, I learned I learned a whole lot, mm -hmm. and we like to think that we that we taught the EPA. Mm -hmm. So one one actually one thing I would say the most significant lesson that came out of it was through my collaboration with the architecture history um, colleague, and that is that we were art, we were able to articulate the importance of the cultural value of these landscapes, of the social value of these landscapes, and the value of their histories. And do, and was do you think their ears were open to that? The head of Superfund at the end of this conference just said, the one thing he heard was, he said, I hear you. And I think that they got the message that in their rather awkward, if not totally ineffective methods of trying to relate to the community, um, they realized that this could be a significant way to truly engage the community. Mm -hmm. That they weren't. It, it took them out of a defensive mode into much more of a collaboration with the community. Mm -hmm. It seems like it would could facilitate uh, many projects, many remediations. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But uh, I guess it would take in the middle of the problem. Uh, oh, by whom? 
I I was in power. Oh yeah. <laughs> you are listening to Terrograms, and our guest is Julie Bargman. She is the principal of Dirt Studio and an assistant professor at the University of Virginia. How would you characterize the relationship between teaching, your teaching, and your practice? Because mm-hmm. the two are very much uh, integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, they are. I like to think of them as uh, very much a continuum. Uh, if I didn't, I'd be going out of my mind <laughs> uh, in doing both. It's so, one job instead of two? Yeah, it's my work. Mm-hmm. It's my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, uh, I let my students uh, get out all my frustrations <laughs> <laughs> that I have in practice. Are they transferred as well? What? My Your frustrations. Oh, I tell war stories all the time <laughs> in studio. You know, I just moan and groan and, you know, but I, I think that, you know, Basically, I, I always give them the biggest dose of reality I can mm-hmm. um, in working on you know, real projects in real time, in real communities, with real communities, if possible. Um, and, but they, they still are operating in the academic realm of a freedom to explore ideas mm-hmm. that um, I actually now use as... as you know, um, I hold up as a model for myself in practice. Um, I use I use examples of my students' work all the time in practice. So, would you say they directly affect your work? The uh, work of the students directly affects directly, your work. Mm-hmm. Directly. And um, is there any one thing you believe teaching needs to focus on more? Teaching in landscape architecture programs mm-hmm. at the university level. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm always struck by how much it's evolved. I mean, I think, I, I so often think about how, you know, it was when I was in graduate school, and that's not that long ago. And um, the, these, how, how, you know, design education right now is, is it's in my mind, sometimes just light years. Mm-hmm. you know, away from then in terms of, you know, the integration of social and cultural issues, um, you know, the currency of, uh, of issues. Um, I mean, I think, I think we've been in a way allowed to go there mm-hmm. uh, because I think that um, uh, there's always pioneers mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they, you know, they kind of do the clearing in front of you mm-hmm. Um so, who have some of those pioneers been? Well, when I well when I was in school, you know, it was Uncle Pete, mm-hmm. uh, Pete Walker, and uh, Aunt Martha, Martha Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Van Volkenberg uh, was there. The late Sherry Clusing, um, uh, George Hargraves came to visit. Uh, Beth Meyer, um, you know, and those were you know all the you know you know, young bucks mm-hmm. um, who just uh, had, you know, a profound effect, uh, you know, on, the, on practice and teaching. I mean, I think we're very fortunate that, you know, some of the best practitioners were also, also been teachers. have also right. been teachers. Exactly. Right. Are they, do you see any new pioneers out there? 
Um, is there is there a uh, passing of the torch? Well, so to speak. Well, um, what I often call the petticoat uh, generation. Uh, that have come out from underneath their skirts. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of them. <laughs> um, and um, I think that I think there's a uh, I think there's a fair number of folks like yourself that are, you know, are are devoted to critical practices and you know teaching. I think maybe that could um, be fortified a bit more. I think that there's been a pervasiveness of um, the syndrome of, you know, your full-time tenured faculty mm -hmm. or nothing. And that's totally difficult for mm -hmm. a practitioner. And on the other hand, in the field of practice, do you think there's much opportunity for young, small offices? I think so. How do they compete against the big behemoths? I think... Um, Kunau and Krug, Michael Van Valkenburg. Michael Van Valkenburg is... Yeah, huge. And in Hargraves. Yeah. They've all exploded, you know, grew up. No, grew out. <laughs> um, but the smaller firms, um, I think, uh, I think very much, uh, you know, operate sim similarly to what I was saying earlier with dirt. Mm -hmm. I think they, I think they are um, in the m mode of you know, of what I think a lot of projects call for now, and even RFPs, you know, mm -hmm. request for proposals, ask for teams, you know, so there's the opportunity there of, of you know, not, you know, you don't have to be this gigunda one-stop shopping firm. You can piggyback. You can piggyback. Mm -hmm. So I'm optimistic, you know, I'm very optimistic about that, um, that, uh, you know, way of working. Mm -hmm. um, kind of advice do you give your graduating students? I, when they're, when they're just going out, um, I, I say, if you can, absolutely go to a firm where you will continue to learn. Um, it's a little old-fashioned, maybe, because it's, you know, may sound like the apprentice mm -hmm. thing, but I think it's very true that, um, uh, to really um, grow, um, and I don't think it's just out of you know just out of. I mean, I think you know one should always uh, work at a place where you continue to right. learn and grow. But I think it's especially critical um, when the students are graduating um, to think about that as a criteria. Totally ha as a criteria, and you know that that gives them. And and I'm talking about learning in in kind of any dimension. Mm -hmm. Okay. It may not be, you know, a firm where they have the greatest projects, but they do them, they construct them impeccably. Mm -hmm. the, you know, so um, the definition of, of, you know, what to learn, you know, it is, um, you know, it's, it's expansive. We have a lot to learn, mm -hmm. you know, but um, uh, as long as uh, they don't go, uh, uh, they don't get too pigeonholed, uh, mm -hmm. which leads to going brain dead. Mm -hmm. Does the does theoretical discourse survive after school or outside the university classrooms? Oh, I absolutely think so. I mean, I think that in which forms? Well, you know, you you kind of look out there about how you know. I think that 
the discourse, the design discourse has, has just gotten so much better. I mean, look at ter- this, <laughs> this thing you're doing, Terragrams. Look at how um, uh, programs like the Cooper Hewitt National mm-hmm. Design Awards has stepped up to just try to, you know, say design matters. Um, you know, uh, you know, you know, Uncle Pete put together, you know, Space Maker Press because he wasn't help- happy with, um, you know, but now space makers no longer. Well, I know, but you know, I like to think that you know that has inspired mm-hmm. you know other folks to just really make a point of um, having a critical voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think it's it's building. It still needs a, a lot of effort, but um, I think I think we all also are benefiting from um, a lot of attention to landscape and landscape architecture. Do you think the popular press is is looking into the field? Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, why else would time call me? You know, (laughs) it's like, what? You know, I mean, it's shocking. How did you like making the interviews with CNN, Time, Studio 360? What what was that like? Yeah. Um, Well, I I mean, I loved it. I mean, again, you know, with, I think, an even larger agenda I have about education, you know, the chance to... Um, get out there and, you know, talk to, you know, not a, you know, the choir, you know, Mm -hmm. well, often, you know, even design audiences aren't the choir, you know, but, you know, a a public beyond, you know, design, art, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've always tried to make that effort talking, going to conferences with engineers and so on and so forth, you know, but clearly, you know, um, those, you know, those venues of more, you know, popular press, um, you know, is fantastic. I mean, I just am always saying, I'm so glad you're interested in the work. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, you know, I, there is a lot of hype, too, you know, and I'm very skeptical of it a lot of times. I, I used to actually in, in uh, say to folks who would, you know, call the Dirt Studio, I'd say, do they really want to talk about the work or do they want to talk to the chick in the hard hat? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of hype, mm-hmm. you know. Did you see that in their line of questioning? Um, yeah, often, you know, they, you know, they, you know, they, the press can't help but to, you know, um, still, you know, be starstruck, you know, and, you know, um, hero worshipers. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, is so antithetical, um, you know, I mean, that's that's what's interesting. I mean, I always, it, it's very interesting if you look at design magazines now. Mm-hmm. Of those magazines that are willing to name every single person on the team, mm-hmm. okay? I've literally had press say, we don't have room enough to, to, fit. to fit the whole team. Do you know the amount of trouble I've get, gotten into? I've mm-hmm. been threatened to be sued, you know, I've been I've been fired off teams, you know, because of this thing of, you know, the hero designer, mm-hmm. the single name mm-hmm. hero designer. designer. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty interesting, you know, the number of, of firms that, you know, don't use their names anymore. Right. Like dirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you think there's a need for this audio discourse, and you don't think that we're whacked here trying to... Uh, um, upstart teragrams. No, not at all. I mean, I think the more, you know, the more uh, 
critical voices are out there, um, absolutely, you know, the better. And I think getting at um, a new media, which is very savvy with, you know, people strapped to their headphones mm-hmm. more than to, you know, a magazine is very, very smart. Mm-hmm. Very smart. And I also um, think that uh, this more, you know, kind of in-depth kind of conversation um, that gets gets at more of an op- operative mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of level, I think is just so much more, um, um, again, instructional or educational for colleagues and for, you know, colleagues kind of young and old, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, because it's not, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's not about a, a bunch of accolade, accolades and, you know, what do you, you know, yeah, I mean, you asked me what I was working on now, but it wasn't, it was more about asking, how are you working now? You've been developing over the past couple of years a rather ambitious project, a book. Oh. Um, <laughs> entitled Toxic Beauty, A Field Guide to the Derelict Terrain. How's it coming? Horribly. And what are the challenges? Ugh. What are you facing? Ugh. Ugh. All right, well. It's mutated. I've always been resistant to doing the book mm-hmm. in that I am very skeptical of vanity press. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hate to write. I hate it. Um, Toxic Beauty started out as a lecture, mm-hmm. and I have finally realized that it should stay a lecture um, because it really was more of a manifesto, mm-hmm. and it's a rant. And I think rants are better as spoken word. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had this in my wish list for four years on my I, Amazon. I know. I was so mad that they listed on Amazon.com. And I've been waiting. I know. But, well, hopefully hopefully another... our very outdated website. <laughs> Could <laughs> will... it take another yes. form that, that, well, was, uh, that you could distribute? Because well, I think there are, a lot of, there are a lot of practitioners like myself who yeah. are very curious about yeah. this, um, this world that you practice in. Yeah. They're curious about um, the language and mm. the, the, the codes and mm. about some mm. approaches because mm-hmm. we, have no, we have no bearing mm. on, mm-hmm. on, on your world because it mm-hmm. doesn't. It doesn't exist so far beyond mm, Dirt mm. Studio. Well, I'll tell you, um, I uh, a few things. One, um, because I do think it's the medium, you know, of choice these days. And although I'm a luddite, I'm trying desperately to catch up with the web. Mm-hmm. I think that th- there's a few things. When I when I, I there were three parts of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the so-called manifesto which i called the ground rules mm-hmm. okay and the second part the the field work which were the projects which you know princeton architectural press would call the monograph mm-hmm. um basically ideally the website when it gets you know renewed will outline some of these ground rules mm-hmm. um of the dirt studio and then use the projects as I wanted to, not as, you know, a fashion show, but as um, examples of the effort to um, establish those ground rules or Mm -hmm. fulfill those ground rules. The third part 
of the book, which was my favorite part, mm -hmm. was the handbook. And the toxic handbook has actually been the thing that has received the most attention and is what I'm saying now I'd like to have as a web-based publication. Mm -hmm. A couple things. It's the techno it's it focuses on the technologies mm -hmm. and those things change uh, you know almost hourly mm -hmm. so it's going to be much more i think appropriately web based i want it to be free mm -hmm. and wholly accessible um and um and the part again of me as educator wants to make you know make the what is extremely hard information to access, mm -hmm. accessible. So there are the philosophies and everything like that, which I hope the website will take care of, and the other kind of educational um, uh, or the kind of uh, nitty-gritty of the practice, um, hopefully the toxic handbook. Mm -hmm. Very well said. That's what we look forward to the website. Okay, best and worst. What do you really enjoy doing in your practice on a day-to-day -day basis? Drawing with a number two pencil. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Such an old-fashioned gal, aren't I? Yeah. Actually, it's still my favorite. Um, I love sitting down at the desk and hashing it out. <laughs> And what are your what are your recurrent gripes about the day to day in the practice? Oh boy. Well, I would say two things. One that's I think general, and the other that may be particular. And in general, you know, you'll hear me. Uh, uh, if and if you ask anybody, I go ballistic in the studio when the role of the designer is not respected. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think it's, uh, again, uh, a big um, a big thing that landscapes need to do, and that is assert their role, you know, not, you know, in a bitchy way, mm -hmm. you know, but just to be very clear um, about what their role is on a project. And um, and hold firm and insist on um, on um, uh, a very active role. I mean, I think that's why more and more um, uh, it's very it's tricky to negotiate that with these collaborative teams. And still, the old old model of landscape architects being a sub, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to folks. So, but also these bigger teams are dealing with projects are quite large in scope and so the landscape architecture component is a tiny percentage. No, but a, but see we we've got to we've got to convince them otherwise or show them otherwise that I mean but even within that percentage uh, I mean these sometimes we need to take that percentage or we don't play. Well, exactly, but I guess I guess what I mean by that is more and more what I have found is that you know we have the chance to get involved in everything, including how building systems loop through the landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, so 
I do think that there's there's more of a role, um, maybe not in implementation or what is kind of under the landscape budget, mm -hmm. but in terms of this more kind of holistic view of projects, mm -hmm. right? So, um, I mean, this usually equates to a bit of extra work. Correct, you know? but it's again all this part of the negotiation, mm -hmm. you know, which. I mean, uh, the, uh, on the other side of this wall, we're we're negotiating <laughs> right now with um, a big collaborative team and a giant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've had to kind of state, dirt does this, right. dirt does this, dirt believes this. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and and actually, this has come with years of the experience. Can you get that? Can you get that telephone conversation? That that um, that meeting soon enough in a project? I mean, do, do you have that opportunity, or are, are sometimes these decisions already made before you're uh, that's, there? That's table? what's really critical, and I think that's I think what that's what's changing our practice, mm -hmm. is that we're getting in more and more at the, you know, the onset of before a project. The, before Bef the, Exactly, before we're kind of relegated to a piece, mm -hmm. you know. So I think that's a significant mm -hmm. change, and that's taking hold. The other particular frustration, mm -hmm. uh, head banging, um, is, you know, has to do with the realm I operate within, mm -hmm. uh, with you know of, of the of the post industrial site, um, and you know I just I just throw up my hands sometimes and say either they don't get it or they don't want to get it, mm -hmm. and. You know, I'm shit out of luck, you know, as far as, <laughs> oh, I said I wasn't going <laughs> to swear, um, but, you know, in terms of the project. And, um, you know, Craig, I, you know, I constantly say, and I, I'm pretty convinced that um, uh, this work isn't going to take hold for another decade or two. Mm -hmm. And that's another devotion I have to teaching. It keeps you, know. you in the, keeps your feet in the field. Well, I'm educating the next, the right. folks who are going to do it. If, you know, because, you know, uh, you know, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. you know, so. mm -hmm. I'm trying. Do you feel that you're, you have a responsibility or a burden to innovate? To come up with something new? No. But in um, a way, you're defining a new field of practice. Um, hmm. Well, I guess when I hear myself and in answer to that question, I um, I say the role, word role a lot. Mm -hmm. So I think that, again, and I'll, I'll rewind all the way back to what I said about how artists operate. Um, I think, you know, if there's anything new here is you know, a, a role that I'm trying to um, demonstrate mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, encourage, mm -hmm. inspire, invent. Uh, invent. Yeah. Paragram. You recently worked on a <laughs> competition entry with, uh, which was Michael Van Bakkerberg among many others, and your uh, project was entitled, your team was entitled Paragram. Where did your team come up with the name? Um, 
it was uh, it was definitely a reference to Archigram. Um, so of course, Arca and Terra. You know, we had to use a land uh, land based uh, as part of the name and. Uh, you know, I think um, we were trying to uh, emulate uh, the kind of forward-looking, process-based um, uh, approach mm -hmm. uh, that Archigram uh, took. I also, you know, have to say I, I was a, a great uh, proponent of naming the team. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm talking about naming teams right. in general. Yes. Because again, I think there's a thing about, you know, about recognizing the dynamic of this entity that one creates, which mm -hmm. Michael was primarily um, responsible for forming. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he very much liked that idea because um, otherwise, you know, and it still did. It, it still was Michael Van Valkenburg's team. Right. Um, but there was the spirit there that we were coming together as a new force. Wow. I hope that our new podcast can follow up on your spirit. And on that note, let's conclude our first delivery of Terragrams. Today, we were joined by Julie Bargman. Julie is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia and the founding principal of Dirt Studio. Find out more about Julie Bargman and Dirt Studio by visiting their website at www.dirtstudio.com. Thank you for joining us for the pilot delivery of Terragrams. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. And please join us next time as we dispatch Terragrams from Barcelona, Spain. Terragrams is made possible with the help of School of Architecture and the Robertson Digital Media Lab at the University of Virginia. Find out more about their programs at www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks to the books for their music. You can find out more about the books at thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the first delivery of Terragrams.